morning, y'all, and welcome back to Starve the Ego, Feed the Soul. I am your host, Nico Barraza, and I have a very special guest for all of you today, my good friend, Dr. Mike Meany. I've known Mike since I was 14 years old. We both met each other on the freshman football team at South Point Catholic High School. Um, funny enough, I didn't graduate from South Point. I went to Tucson High. Go Badgers, just so you all know where I lie. But Mike Meany... And I've known each other for a very long time, and I've always been a huge fan of this man. He's done some incredible work. Uh, he's gone through his own trials and tribulations through life, struggling with addiction, identity, uh, religion. We get into an amazing discussion, and honestly, uh, I've really enjoyed just talking with Mike. He's got an incredible mind. He's able to see the nuance and the intricacies of life in ways that I think a lot of other people are striving to see. And, um, you know, not to talk him up too much, but I am a huge fan. Uh, Mike first got his undergraduate degree from Georgetown University, then went on to pursue a master's at Arizona State University before pursuing and finally gaining his PhD in education from the world-renowned University of Cambridge out in the UK. And now Mike works for a tech firm, basically studying how people learn, how people interact with technology. Uh, his specific research focus focuses around massive open online courses known as MOOCs and other open scale educational resources and how these resources are reproducing inequalities in society. Um, so we focus a little bit on his background, but primarily this is just a conversation from uh, two men that have known each other for a long time. We both recount our experiences with religion and specifically Catholicism at a very young age, going to parochial Catholic schools and going on to Catholic high school. I only attended Catholic high school for two years. Mike went for all four before I transferred to a public high school. But we just get into everything from childhood to adolescence to uh, growing up with you know drugs and alcohol around us to going to college. And Mike recounts his intimate story uh, and sort of journey through AA, the AA program and how that sort of reconnected him with spirituality and faith to an extent. Um, and then we also just discuss some some sort of greater ideas of life and purpose and meaning and connection and relationships. So I don't need to really introduce this conversation too much. It's a long one, and I think it's really worth your time and ears to listen to the, the uh, conversation in its entirety. I really appreciate Dr. Meany for coming on the show. Um, I'd love to have him on again. As you can tell, Mike and I can just riff off each other for hours. I really enjoy discussing things with him. And I think he brings such an open-mindedness and um, not only his his intellectual ability, but just his, his ability to see just, you know, the, the differences within disparity, within race, within culture, and, you know, how a lot of times as human beings, we trap ourselves in these boxes that, that as a society we've created to try to control or try to contort reality in a sense that makes more sense to us or allows us to feel a little bit more comfortable. And I really enjoy Mike's mind because he is consistent consistently pushing outside of these boxes and these norms and trying to search for for areas that we might necessarily not have it right right we might not have the uh, the the modus operandi in the right way if you will we might be kind of straying a little bit from um you know what is uh is true equality or equitability within society and i just really appreciate mike coming on the show i hope you all get a lot out of this conversation um, before i get to the show i just want to say uh, one quick shout out 
to our last guest, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. She, her episode is just flying off the shelves right now and people are loving it. I'm getting a ton of comments from it. So thank you guys for reaching out to me, you know, commenting on Instagram, sharing on social media. I really appreciate that. I hope you do the same with this episode. This episode is heartfelt, um, just as valuable in my opinion. And I really appreciate Dr. Meany coming on the show and just chatting with me and just two sort of old time friends catching up and getting down to the uh, the deeper parts of of life and existence. So without further ado, Dr. Michael Meany. Mike Meany, uh, welcome to the Star of the Ego Feed the Soul podcast, my friend. It has been a while since we've seen yeah. each other. Well, we're not really seeing each other, but... Right. Uh, for those of you listening out there, I grew up with Mike. We've known each other, I think, since we were probably 14 years old, 13, yeah, 14, 14 years old. Says, yeah. yeah, freshman in high school. Yeah, 14, 15. Playing football, I think, is when we met, right? Yep, yep. Freshman yeah. year of football at South Point Catholic High School um, right. in Tucson, Arizona. And uh, uh, Mike, Mike is, he has such a breadth and depth of experience in life, and he's a, a amazingly intelligent human being as well, too, as well as highly empathic. So I've, I've watched him sort of grow via social media because I haven't seen him in person in so long, and um, I just wanted to have him on the show and talk about so much of his life and his experience and his outlook uh, just on on healing, self-identity, uh, sobriety, addiction, all these things that he's has experience with um, because uh, he's a phenomenal, phenomenal gent that I, that I look up to and admire in my own right. So welcome, Mike. Uh, thank you for coming on, my friend. Hey, thanks, man. Uh, it's great to be here. It's, it's great seeing you. It has been a while. I've also uh, appreciated following you on social media and uh yeah just watching you grow this beautiful thing that you've got uh going on and uh i'm happy to be a part of it so thanks for having me you bet my man i, I appreciate those kind words Dude, let's just get right into it uh yeah let's let's give everyone a little background on on yourself and kind of your life history kind of set everyone up for you know getting into i guess the later stages of your life yeah. Um, so I, uh, so my name is Mike Meany. Um, I was born in, uh, you know, Connecticut, um, moved out to Tucson, Arizona when I was pretty young, uh, with both my parents, um, uh, have an older sister and a younger brother. And, uh, we had a really, really nice life. Um, my parents, uh, my, 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 uh, my dad's from a very working class background and my mom's uh, parents were were immigrants from Ireland so they uh, grew up in um, situations of of, uh, of more scarcity uh, than we did uh, but both of them uh, had a lot of educational opportunity um, and like went on and I became medical doctors and so they were able to provide us a really nice life with um, a lot of education that, that was a big focus in in our household and uh something that my brother sister and i uh, are carrying on today in lots of ways um you, you know so like uh in some ways my life has been in, in, incredibly blessed and i would say like in most ways um I've, I've i've lived an incredibly blessed life from the time i was born until now um there were some things like in everybody's life uh that were that were turbulent, uh, that were unexpected, that were challenging to deal with uh, as a young 
child without the context and frameworks and infrastructure to help you absorb uh, turbulence, I guess. Um, so my parents uh, split up when I was pretty young. I think fifth grade is when my dad moved out and uh, my parents got divorced. And um, so that is never easy. Um, you know, and then uh, I, I, I also grew up um, with a pronounced stutter, uh, a speech impediment, a stammer um, that was quite uh, inhibiting when I was younger. Um, and now, I mean, I've, I, I manage it mostly. Um, and, uh, but uh, I would say that those sorts of things kind of um, embedded within me a little bit of a sense of feeling a little different, um, feeling yeah. a little isolated. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I mean, I, I don't want to go on too long in the intro, but, um, sure. the, the rest of my life, uh, yeah, has been kind of like, or how I think about it is just like a series of reactions and orientations towards striving to have a better life that were in some ways informed by things I experienced early on. I think I wanted to, um, achieve a lot and I didn't want my stutter to hold me back. Um, and I wanted to, uh, you know, maintain good relationships with my family and my mom and dad. And, uh, I also wanted to find like real partnership and love and, um, experience kind of a wholeness of love, uh, that, um, I think that at least, in terms of the models that I was, ex I had direct access to, like weren't exactly there, um, like mutual reciprocal whole love. Um, yeah. And so I, I did a bunch of stuff in my personal and professional life, uh, kind of that were in some ways motivated by that in some ways not. And, uh, I've had a lot of success in school and in work and also, uh, like partied a lot and um, had to had to really reckon with how to integrate those two distinct parts of my life, um, and that took a long, long time, and I'm still doing it, uh, and it's a daily journey. That's a good brief synopsis. Let's let's uh, let's touch on the um, religious aspect, dude. Because I, you know, I yeah. know much like I did. You grew up, you know, pretty stark Roman Catholic. Uh, you know, you're pretty, yeah. pretty much full full Irish, right? That's your background. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm half yeah. I'm half Irish and half Mexican. So I feel like I got like okay. both of the I, I dig it. Both, yeah. of, both of the guilt, uh, yeah. the spicy guilt. Um, but let's talk about your background, dude, because I think that that played so much into our childhoods and your childhood. Sure. And then, you know, I, I think that kind of brings us into <clears throat> sort of, you know, because you you went so deep into education and to sort of yeah. like, you know, logical thinking. You're a very deep thinker, and and how like you kind of yeah. lost the faith, came back to it. Because I'm really curious on on that role and how it played in your your healing process and still plays. So let's mm. talk about like your upbringing with with religion for a little bit, yeah, um, and how that formed you in your young kind of formative years. For sure. No, it's, uh, thanks for that prompt. Um, yeah, so I, I'm 75% Irish and a quarter Lithuanian. I think the uh, Lithuanian side of my family, uh, I, uh, I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge that, uh, but also a very <laughs> Catholic culture. Um, yeah, but so, uh, it's interesting, man. I mean, I guess my grandparents, I, I knew three of my four grandparents, my mamo and papa, which is my grandma, my mom, 
side and then my Nana on my dad's side. And to this day, they're the three most religious, spiritual, in touch with God people I've ever met. I mean, uh, my grandmother said like a rosary and a, uh, a dedication, like almost every night she went to mass every day throughout her life. Um, uh, on my dad's side, my, my, uh, my mom's dad, when he was, um, at the end of his life and he was suffering from a little bit of uh, dementia, um, and, you know, struggling physically and mentally, uh, and my mom was visiting him in Florida and, uh, toward the end of his life, she found him one day on his knees, uh, praying in Irish. Um, and so like he had lost so many of his faculties otherwise, but like the uh, embedded in his core was like praying in his native, you know, in Irish, wow. uh, which is this really beautiful image. And I think I've just always understood that to be so like reflective of his intense face. But, um, but both my parents are also like, so they're, they're from extremely Catholic traditions. I would say both of them are believers overall, uh, but they're both like doctors and very well trained and very logical. And um, I would say that they, uh, I don't know that they ever, um, I guess I would say subscribed to a lot of the, I guess, like rigidity of belief that sometimes the Catholic faith and the manifestation of it can kind of impose upon uh, people. So I, I kind of, from my parents, I got the best of both worlds where we were culturally Catholic and they valued it and we went to church and they sent us to Catholic school, but it was never sort of like over overly imposed and they encouraged doubt and skepticism and questioning and belief. I mean, both my parents were always like, if someone gives you an answer to a question that you don't like buy, like ask him, ask him more questions, right? I mean, this was, and that's what it was like in my household. Um, and that was, it, it really formed how my mind works. Um, yeah. And so, uh, that was kind of like the cultural inheritance, I guess. And then I went to Catholic school. Um, and you know, I give a lot of credit to my friend, Tim Horley. I don't know if you, uh, remember Tim Durkin, Tim Horley, mm-hmm. uh, South Point, um, and Cyril and the whole way back. Um, you know, he, 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 I, I guess I would say, so he's one of my best friends in the whole world. Um, and I've known him since I was in kindergarten. Uh, and he, like matured intellectually, I don't know, I, I guess well before me and a lot of other people. And he always read these books and he was always interested in these bigger ideas. And so in middle school, we started talking and hanging out more and reading philosophers that we probably shouldn't have been reading at the time, started listening to music like Pink Floyd, we went through a punk rock phase, this like rebellion. And uh, we started asking questions about Catholic doctrine to our school. Um, and you know, these were, these were intense questions. Like I didn't understand, um, the church's teaching around the LGBT community. I, Mm. I didn't understand the church's stance on, uh, a woman's right over the 
autonomy of her body. I, I didn't understand the church's teaching on non-Catholics. And um, yeah. yeah, the answers I got were super not satisfying. I got kind of boilerplate, um, not super deep, not complicated answers. And um, so that started to plant the seeds of doubt, I guess. Um, and then I would say, uh, I started to experience things in middle school and early on in high school that showed me, I guess, um, how not like evil or like how bad I could be, but like how, how, how I was not innocent, like, like in a deep sense. And I think for me grappling with the fact that I was not innocent in my life and that I was capable of uh, being harmful to others or doing things selfishly or harming myself or even seeing um, other people be harmed by things that had nothing to do with me. I, I had like one of my best, like one of my closest family friends passed away when he was in high school from a drug overdose. Um, other friends lost siblings the the innocence of myself and the innocence of my life you know there's only a few years after my parents split up was starting to be called into question and so i became a bit more jaded and and i became more jaded as i became more skeptical and started asking questions and didn't get good answers and realized that i couldn't kind of commit myself to this framework it was it was just not satisfying um anyway so i don't know if that was what you wanted to hear no. and that was a long answer but that's uh, no precisely yeah. we're, we're gonna get into it dude because i i yeah. share the sentiment it's we had very similar experiences around the same age so like uh my grandparents so my not my thought they're very um starch catholic you know um my grandmother much like your mom's um mother you know went to mass you know, pretty much every day, uh, for sure. Every Sunday, you know, most, most time every Friday, I also went to a Catholic school in Tucson from grades first through six. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I remember, so I was at St. Ambrose when I was in a sixth yeah. grade, which, you know, it's part of that whole parochial system in Tucson. Right. And, uh, I was always getting in trouble, you know, and I remember, uh, being in sixth grade and, um, I was asking, I had, I can't remember the nun's name, but we had nuns and deacons, you know, as Mm -hmm. teachers. Right. And this was like, I think in theology or religion, I can't remember the name of the class. And, and we were like, and this is like the sixth time we've read the Bible. And I remember we were going through a pass of like, you know, when there's sort of this persecution of pagans, you know, Mm -hmm. I can't remember what what part it is. There's a couple parts in the Bible on that. And I remember I kept raising my hand. I was like, what, you know? we sort of started this class with like, God loves everybody, right. you know? And, um, in my mind, you know, being a, being a 12 year old, I was like putting these logical points together of like, if, if this part, if this, you know, all sort of powerful being loves everything, why is it causing harm to human beings that choose not to believe in right. it, you know? Um, and, um, cause there really wasn't any mercy in that, right. In right. my mind. And the nun did not like that. Uh, I asked multiple questions. And then I think it's just like a yeah. week after we were reading this text, uh, she got a ruler and smacked the hell out of me because like I kept <laughs> asking questions, um, you know, oh, smacking the arm. It was, it, yeah, it was crazy. Brutal. And so I went, okay. she, yeah, she shut me the principal's Jeez. office, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. This is, dude, this is, this is a Catholic love. Uh, yeah, <laughs> totally. Wow. 
it was like it was like a little you know she didn't like yeah. beat me with the ruler but it, it, was, right. it was she let me hit me with a piece of wood yeah. dude no and, right um, i mean yeah, so wow. i remember wow. i went i went to the principal's office um and the the principal called my mom she's like you know nicholas is in uh is in the office again like you need to come come my mom was a teacher so she was at a public school so she comes over and she's like what happened well he was asking these questions and like and what questions was he asking well what like why is this happening and he's like right. my mom's like that's a fair question you know right. like, like <laughs> just because you don't have an answer doesn't mean he has to go to the principal's office so um you know my mom you know you know in all her own trauma she's uh you know a very strong woman and she was just like all right you're done with you're done with catholic school you mm-hmm. know so she took me mm-hmm. out that week i went to a public school um, and, and I will say like credit to my family is that, you know, they were, even though my grandparents were very Catholic themselves, much like your family and your, your mom, your dad, being medical doctors, they, they were very much like, you should never be afraid to ask questions, you know, mm-hmm. like, like you can still, whether you, and they also never sort of, um, forced me into faith, you know, they mm-hmm. were like, when I was really young, when I was like up until nine years old, they, I kind of just went with them all the time. Mm-hmm. But right when I sort of got around 11 or 12, you know, they were really like, if you don't want to come to church or mass, because you, you don't have to, you you know, um, mm-hmm. we'd like you to, but you don't have to, you know, and uh, I usually went with them just because like, I wanted to spend time with my family. But it was also I felt empowered to sort of navigate uh, belief and faith in my own uh, time, you know, my own manner. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't really until I went to public school where I, I was exposed to these kids, from, you know, because when you're in Catholic school, you're kind of in the bubble, right? You're most of the, right. most of the kids, if not all of them right, are around right. the same faith, right? Um and most have a certain economic backing, I will say, you know, like depending on what Catholic mm-hmm. school you went to, but went to public school, it's like kids from all over the place, you know, like surrounded by, by gangs, surrounded by, you know, mm-hmm. kids from different faiths, different socioeconomic strata. And uh, that opened my mind even more because, you know, I grew up in the barrio, but my, my family very much kept me in a bubble where I went to Catholic school, came home, went to baseball practice and stayed, you know, and I had friends that I would hang out with, but really wasn't allowed to roam and get in trouble, mm-hmm. you know, because it could have gone wrong real fast mm-hmm. um so like i, I want to talk about when when did you start to sort of pull away like at what age yeah. and then you know was that through high school and how did that how did that sort of coexist with like your high school experience like drinking yeah. partying you know because for people that don't know like you know you you were like uh, a very popular dude in high school like you know like you were um ahead of your class you know uh great grades like you know great at school but you also like i did went out and yeah. pretty much drank every weekend yeah you know right. <laughs> as young kids right. <laughs> we, yeah, drank, right. we played music you know as yeah. people were smoking hookah back then you know and you're right and were, dude, right right yeah and we didn't yeah. know what was in it to be honest um but how did that I, I really think it's like this this kind of duality of like you know right the, you're kind of like letting go of your faith that you've had you know for right. most of your young life and then you're also experiencing these more adult-like pieces of reality yeah it's such a good question and like i uh i thanks for sharing all of of your context too. I don't like know that I, I appreciated how it's similar experiences we had just in, 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 in different contexts. Um, you know, and it's a huge credit to your mom and, 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 and I give a lot of credit to my mom and dad as well for not forcing it and not making it a thing. Um, yeah. So I, I, start, I started to, yeah. So let me step back. I think, and part of what I appreciate about my Catholic upbringing is that you are introduced 
to kind of these really deep questions from a very young age. Right. Um, and those deep questions don't go anywhere for the rest of your life, right? They're kind of always there. Why are mm -hmm. we here? What does it matter? What should I do? Right. Yep. Like with myself and this, totally. this life. And so thinking about that stuff is important. And so I was always thinking about that stuff. And, and I don't know if it's like whatever because of my parents or because of school or because I liked math when I was younger. I've, I've really always like wanted like, I don't know, like my mom was uh, always said, if you have like, if you have a question, don't stop asking why until you get to the end of it. Like, which is like a simple, but like powerful thing. Cause it's like, there's a lot of assumptions to a lot of beliefs that are not ever questioned. And uh, so I learned early on to just question the assumptions and my beliefs and and it was very dissatisfying to me intellectually when people told me that like when we got to some assumption, some like root problem, it was like, well, you just have to believe that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, well, that's where you stop asking questions because we're told that this is what we believe and so that's what we believe. And I was like, that's not adequate, right? Like, um, and I think what, so, so here's what here's what that like did I think so like we have these deep questions starting from when we're very young and throughout our life throughout all of our life we're trying to like form narratives and grab frameworks and put together some model of reality that makes our structured experience meaningful um, and so I inherited one through the Catholic Church through my family and then at some point basically that model was shattered right uh, because of these things that i experienced because of people passing away because of uh you know i just wasn't persuaded logically like by it right i was more scientific and skeptical and so this model is shattered and and then i mean like i think it's pretty archetypal i think this happens to a lot of people but when you don't have a framework that's helping guide you to make sense of meaning in your life, um, you make one of your own. I mean, like, I don't know if you remember the band, the, the cool shades. Oh yeah. 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 yeah um, right. Yeah. Nick still plays drums in Prescott. Yeah, he's, yeah. Yeah. So they have this song, um, uh, and I, now I'm, I'm blanking on its name, but, the the opening line is have you ever felt so lost and alone that you invented a god of your own oh wow yeah and they wrote that as like high schoolers and i don't I think i fully appreciated that at the time they wrote that at a was that moss who wrote yeah, that yeah dude lyric? moss moss and i think nick and greg mm. and sean i mean i so have you ever felt so lost and alone that you invented a god of your own and like when i i was listening to that recently and i was like holy shit like that's basically like when I like left the Catholic church, like I was, I mean, and I don't know how conscious of this I was, but I had to invent my own sense of morality. Um, and you know, it's trial and error and you don't know what the hell you're doing. And you're also a teenager and going through adolescence and puberty and status matters a lot. And people have girlfriends and boyfriends and then there's drinking and drugs. And yeah. if you don't, 
have an anchor an anchoring framework during that i mean like you can make it out but um but i think you can see like i got more and more jaded because i because i was doing things that i was not like proud of and i was seeing a lot of other people do things that they weren't proud of that were harmful to others that were you know dishonest and deceitful and hurtful and i was hurt and i hurt people you know this is most in the context of of dating and women and and drinking and drugs and partying i mean and it, yeah. and um and and yeah and and so um i guess i'll just say like one more thing is that uh the kind of like uh, the kind of dual nature of my own path i mean i've always cared about you know, putting my mind to like maximal use to society. And so I was always interested in social justice and public policy and like, how can we build a more flourishing community for everyone? And especially like people that have been historically excluded and marginalized for things uh, that, that they have no control over. Um, and, and, and so, and 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 my Catholic faith informed that for me too, because Catholic social teaching is the most underrated part of Catholicism, I think. And yeah. so that so that was always important to me, and 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 I maintained that, but I I didn't I didn't like the the real structured theology. I like I I I didn't find it persuasive, so. I left that aside. And so I kind of like had a public utilitarianism. Like I wanted to help a lot of people and do a lot of good. Um, uh, but then in my private you know, life, I mean, I don't think I would have said this at the time, but uh, I was like kind of uh, nihilistic. Like I, I, I didn't know that like morality was anything other than uh you know, some contingent set of guidelines that are socially agreed upon. Um, and so I thought that was kind of like bunk and that I could kind of do my own thing. And yeah. And, and, you know, so that was another long answer, but that's, but that's how I got there. You were all about long answers on this show, my friend. Um, <laughs> so from there, like, when did you, sort of because when we, when we spoke on the phone on the pre-call because i didn't know this until you told me about it but when did you first realize you had a problem with like alcohol yeah. or with addiction because when i was when i was like 14 15 like i wasn't drinking heavily you know i mean it was such a thing in tucson like high school parties and sort of all the high schools kind of got together i think when we sort of got a certain age and yeah was really right intermingled yeah like south right. point tucson high would would kind of hang out you know right we parties a lot yeah everybody did yeah it, I think we had a unique high school experience. I mean, I know that other people do this, but when I when I talk to friends that you know went to high schools in different states, um, they 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 seem to not drink as much. Dude, this you know? is the most amazing. So uh, this is a lifelong question that I've had. Yeah. Is like, is Tucson just like particularly debaucherous, and <laughs> and and like, is it just a particularly degenerate place? Because 
dude it's stuck I in would, like the 60s and 70s dude. <laughs> yeah well and it's like i don't know it's the desert and there's not a lot to do so people just get fucked up i mean i don't know yeah. like i don't know like i feel like that you're, is part of it you're basically and, vision questing from birth you yeah know? dude right i mean it's it's wild and then it's scary too because everything's so spread out and there's you you know everyone's driving all the time right there's just totally. like we had uber public transportation i mean I look back on high school, man, and I'm, I'm lucky that I'm alive. I'm lucky that, uh, but you know, all most of my friends are alive. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you know, um, and, uh, it's just like, it's wild. Yeah. So I, I, I'm with you there. I, I think some of it is Tucson. Yeah. I think there was also a certain amount of freedom, like, uh, I don't know, maybe it was like our millennial generation, but it seemed like a lot of the, and I want to say kids because we were kids back then, we were just entrusted to sort of like, um, you know, have fun, but not do anything dumb. Right. Right. And, and not to say that there wasn't plenty of dumb shit that happened. Um, but I just remember going to these parties in high school and and feeling like I was an adult. Like I was like, Oh, like these are all my, these are all my, you know, um, community members. I I felt very safe also, but I felt like very much like, like, um, I don't know. I felt like I, like the confidence dude. Yeah. I wish I had the confidence I did when I was 17 totally you know totally dude. um yeah and it's strange because yeah i i'm i'm still trying to understand what like the mental gap is like when you just have like a total blindness to how big the world is um oh, yeah. and like like you're kind of told that but like you don't buy it or like i didn't buy it i was like no i'm not blind like i have a pretty good model of like what's going on like I'll be all right doing my own thing, you know? And yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess, uh, well, so your question of when I started to notice that I, I struggled with, with drinking. I mean, so on the one hand, the irony is like, I mean, so like I'm Irish Catholic, uh, heavy drinking is sort of like deeply in my DNA. Uh, there's, um, a number of people on both sides of my family that have struggled with this. Um, and so I knew, and like, I knew that growing up, right. Like, like it was talked about, it was, um, and so it was something that I was mindful of or that I was at least introduced to early on. But I mean, if I'm being honest, the first time I drank, I mean, and if you go to an AA meeting, like a lot of people will share about the first time they drank and it's just like a magical thing that they'll never forget. And I had that experience. I was like, Oh my God, uh, this is everything I ever like needed to feel warm and good and excited uh, about life. And it made me, it made my mind slow down. So, so that was the thing that was really important for me in, in drinking is that like my mind is always going like 99 miles an hour and I'm thinking about all this shit and I've got things going on in my life that I'm really excited about and it's just racing, 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 racing. And the only thing that could slow it down was getting fucked up. Yeah. Uh, and so I, that I, I found that really attractive. Um, yeah. but the third time I drank, I, like I blacked out, uh, I was like 16 and, and I was the only person who blacked out and, and I made a fool of myself and it was really 
embarrassing and and i was really mean to like one of my best friends and um you know and i woke up uh with shame and guilt and feeling horrible and like that morning i remember where i was i remember exactly what i was doing and i remember like where the thought hit me like for the first time and it was that morning and like there was i was like oh my god what if i'm an alcoholic like what if i am just like so and i was like upset because i was like god that is so cliche like how cliche is it if i'm just this deeply irish catholic kid who like can't handle his liquor and is a bad drunk uh but that was basically it um and you know i wrestled with that on and off but like so that was the first time and then um but you know i was young and and i would try to only have beer try to only have wine or i'd only try to do this or that and i love how um, you're rationalizing what to drink at that yeah oh dude yeah so that's another thing that's super super common like I would not mix. I would not have clear liquor. I would not have dark liquor. I would not have beer. I would not have wine. I would not drink before. Like I would, I tried everything. Um, you know, uh, but then in college, uh, you know, in, in, in college, I fell down a flight of stairs when I was drunk one night and I like shattered my jaw and I had my mouth wired shut and my blood alcohol content was 0.34, which is like oh, enough shit. to have put me in a coma. And uh, my parents had to fly out to Washington, D.C., where, like where I was in college and I had surgery and I woke up with my mouth wired shut and my face was black and blue. And, um, and that was really scary cause I really could have died. And I, it's a miracle that I didn't die. And the number, I mean, and the thing is, if you have in a common issue with people that have alcoholism is blacking out. And I was a blackout drinker and I didn't black out every time, but I blacked out often. Um, and most of the time I would wake up and I, it would be fine, but sometimes I'd wake up and I'd be in a hospital room with my mouth wired shut. And it was like, holy fuck, how did I get myself into this place? And then toward the end of my drinking, it was like, I'd wake up and I wouldn't open my eyes because I was afraid to open my eyes to see where I was because I didn't know. Um, but anyways, after my mouth got wired shut. I mean, I still drank for another three years after that. I mean, so it was like, um, it was a lot. Um, and it's, but, but I thought it was something else. I thought it was because I had unresolved issues with things from earlier in my life. I thought it was because I was just, uh, you know, an angsty teen or that I had gotten my heart broken or like whatever. And, and so I was, I was thinking through every other possibility except to come to the conclusion that I was an alcoholic, even though deep down from the third time I drank onward, that was like a lingering question. And, um, yeah. Do you think that uh, drinking alcohol at that age like affected your relationships? Because you you have way more experience dating in high school. Because I didn't date a single girl in, in my entire mm-hmm. high school career. Um, I, I don't I don't really know why. I think I was just like busy and also like uh, maybe man, shy. I don't know what the deal was. Yourself a lot of uh, <laughs> save yourself a lot of time and energy, probably. Probably, but I also didn't have any experience when I got into college either. You know, mm-hmm. so. 
like I think that you know there, there's there, there's positive pros and cons from, from all these things we we either experience or don't. But I'm curious, like drinking, you know, because I don't I don't have an answer since I, I wasn't in a relationship in high school, you know, with yeah. being hormonal and emotional. But do you think it affected your interpersonal? Because you you brought up your friend that you you know when you first noticed like thought you had a problem, you you had an argument with him or her yeah. that night, and uh, you know, do you think it affected like your romantic relationship too, being a being a young kid? Yeah, I mean. Absolutely. I mean, I think the other thing that I really loved about alcohol, and I think, you know, I don't know that this is that unique to alcoholics, but um, alcohol is a tremendous enabler. Um, And so this is where I start to kind of connect some things, but like, so if you feel so lost and alone that you invent a God of your own and you have this sort of moral relativism, uh, where, uh, sort of like morality is, is it's an unknown and it's, it's not sort of like consistent across contexts and situations. Um, that is an incredibly powerful enabling framework for a lot of bad behavior. Um, and, or at, at least I don't want to say bad behavior because not like I, I begrudge anybody or like I scold anyone. It's just, it's not self-fulfilling. It's not self-empowering. It's not self-nourishing behavior. Um, and then alcohol in like, you kind of know it's probably not good uh, behavior, but then you have alcohol and that totally for me helped me get over that real quick. Um, and yeah, I mean, so I think, yeah, it was, it was, there was a lot of infidelity, uh, in, in the social crowd that I, I hung out with, um, in, in high school and alcohol was always involved in all those instances. Um, and it was in the fidelity that was, that I participated in. It was infidelity that I experienced. Like I, I, people were unfaithful to me. And, uh, you know, these were issues that were pretty consistent across my friend groups. Um, and you know, you're young and you don't know anything and you're trying to make sense of it all. So you're talking to people about it. But, um, I think, dating and alcohol in Tucson, Arizona, uh, I, you know, I, it, it, and like, I think that was harmful. I think it was harmful for me because I, uh, my parents stood up and both my parents are like phenomenal people. And I, I, they're just, they're the most important people in my life. And, and, but like their like relationship just didn't work out like for lots of reasons, but like, uh so like that as a model for me to think about was like okay that one didn't work and then it was like every relationship i had in high school uh and college was trapped in this uh context of partying drinking infidelity dishonesty and so my attachment to women and relationships got super distorted um, yeah. because of that. 
do you think you were and i'll answer this question for myself first but like you were looking yeah. within your relational partners and women like for healing because mm-hmm. i feel like in a lot of my uh or at least in the, the two serious ones i've had um because you you brought up sort of like the idea of self and until we sort of learn to like love the shadow parts of ourself integrated into our life a lot of times we just spend our adolescence and the majority of our adult lives running from these areas of ourselves you know being dishonest because you brought up dishonesty well if we can't be honest with ourselves about what we're experiencing we certainly won't be honest with someone we love right because we don't have a lot of self-love and i noticed that in my in my sort of um like unfaithful moments or you know betraying moments uh that i just merely was not being honest with myself either you know Mm. and my communication was right was pretty crap because I wasn't communicating with myself, you know, like I, I wasn't meeting my own needs or being honest about my own problems. So how on earth was I going to be able to share, you know, uh, a healthy version of me with, with someone I loved? Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, and I, I mean, I've, I've talked a lot and I also want to hear a little bit more about your experience. Cause that, the fact that you didn't like date seriously in high school is like, it's like, cause you were also like, this handsome star athlete, like people knew who you were, you partied, uh, but you avoided that, which is just like interesting. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and I'm curious what that experience was like, um, on your end, I, but yeah. in short, uh, the answer is yes. I mean, I think for reasons that I'm still figuring out for reasons that I didn't fully think about at the time obviously but like yeah i sought affirmation i sought attention i sought love um from from external sources and it was not unique to like women but that was a uh a particularly um it 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 was a it was a, a common i guess source of external validation for a lot of people and you're not necessarily thinking about it like that but um but you know in sports and in school and in, in a lot of things i've done they've all been motivated by the things that i'm interested in but some of it too i mean and in, in some sense this is true of everyone but we seek validation and like yeah. i think for those of us that, um, and again, I like have had an incredibly like blessed life. I like I never had to want for anything materially, but my soul was like undernourished, particularly by myself. Like I still struggle with self love. It's the yeah. and I. I feel like I needed like to be loved and like, and, 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 and I was a shit partner yeah. because I didn't love my, my self. And if you don't love yourself, you can't receive love in an ordered way and you can't give love in an ordered way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, definitely. I was definitely seeking that. Sure. I want to talk more about about self love, dude, because I feel like we'll get into it because it, it applies to so many things we're going to talk about yeah. on this episode with you. But I want to answer your question. So with me, yeah. 
I it wasn't for lack of like wanting a partner mm. or wanting to date someone in high school. I just don't think the women I was interested in were interested in me. You know, like I maybe I didn't know how to communicate it, but um, mm. you know, I grew up in this interesting dynamic where my mom, she's been single her entire life. You know, her mm. and my dad never got together, so I was always with a single mom. So I, I all she was always alone. You know, alone and and lonely to an extent. And my grandparents, they were together for fifty eight years before my grandfather wow. passed away. So I had these two different dynamics that I was sort of raised around. You know. Mm. And I think like even being really young, like I was an immensely lonely kid. You know, I think that like a lot of times I was attracted to sport because I was competitive and good at them. But, but because I was around like people like yourself, like people I could befriend, you know, yeah. I didn't feel so alone. And um, I think I didn't grow up with siblings either. So I don't know if like those played some subconscious sort of roles and were like drivers in the back of my mind. But yeah, I went out and did these things, but I, I don't remember like shit i don't remember one single time like ever you know um being like oh i want to i want to like go out with this person or like date this person mm-hmm. or like an avoidant personality that was developing mm-hmm. but it, it was interesting because even in college like uh i i went through all of my undergrad my four years um and i you know went on a, a bunch of dates and, and and had my fair share of fun but i wasn't in a relationship all through college mm-hmm. like i didn't get a relationship my first real relationship was when i was 22 um when i moved to chile and i met a gal down there so wow. uh, i i think there was um you know those were like eight years through high school and through undergrad that that i i wasn't building relational experience mm-hmm. you know and so i wasn't able to make mistakes in a relationship to really mm-hmm. learn from because you know mm. if you don't take a swing at the ball you're not going to know if you can hit it or not right and and i i just wasn't even in a game so i it's funny being being like you know in my 20s and in my 30s in relationships i'm like i'm quite new at a lot of this shit you know because mm-hmm. you know people such as yourself although you, you made plenty of mistakes in high school no doubt you still have those experiences to draw back on you know mm. and um so yeah, for me, I guess the short answer is, is I just, there wasn't for a lack of wanting a relationship. It just mm. didn't manifest for me, you know? Mm. Um, I, I don't know why, uh, you know, I'm sure if I, if I look hard enough, probably maybe it was just awkward. Mm. I don't remember. Um, but yeah, but I think I also connect with that sentiment as a young kid. I don't, I mean, even now I struggle with self-love and I appreciate you admitting that it's a, it's a consistent thing that I look at because so many people, you know, in self-help books, gurus on the internet, they'll be like, just love yourself, practice self-love. And, and a lot of times I'm like, what the hell does that look like? You know, yeah. like, what does it look like in real time? Yeah. I mean, um, well, and I know that, so I, two things one i think yeah like that's something that i like i ask my sponsor now all the time like uh to affirm like he asked me to like practice self-love and after a while of him telling me that i sort of said what do you mean (laughs) like i was like i don't know how to do that like what are you talking about Mm. um and you know, and he's had me do really small things like write down things that I'm not happy about that I've done or that I'm ashamed of and write out like in the next sentence that despite having done that, you still know that you're worthy of being loved. And I was like, and it was radical because I like, I get it's uncomfortable for me to even say that out loud. The first few times that I tried to type that out, I was like, this is weird. I can't do this. Like, this is contradictory. Like I'm writing down about a fuck up I had 
I can't write right next to it that I know I'm still worthy of love or that God still loves me or anything like that. Like it was just, so I, it was totally, like you totally had no conception of this. Right. Um, and yeah, I'd, I'd love to share more about that, but I also just, just want to ask you one more question. Cause I'm, I'm curious what, um, how, how was it navigating questions of morality for you, uh, after kind of like leaving faith? I mean, so like on the one hand, I like have this very sophisticated answer, like to how I navigated it. Um, you know, and on the other hand, like a lot of people just like tell me like dude you need to just chill the fuck out like you were in like you know eighth grade ninth grade why are you you know developing yep. frameworks for morality uh, but yeah yep. i'm wondering what that experience was like for you it, it, it's funny how we never talked about this as kids because i was thinking the exact same things but uh, i was re- i was uh, really quite embarrassed to talk about them because i thought people would think i was weird you know like oh, like I, I started to read like you know buddhist books and Taoist books yeah. and I, I read the quran at a young age i was reading the torah like i was just i was trying to find like i think it was like right around when i turned maybe like maybe the first year of high school, even at South Point, like I had gone to um, Mansfield middle school for two years after that South Point issue. And so let's see, being around these cultures, I guess my way of handling it was like, I'm just going to do this logically. I'm going to learn everything I can and I'm going to bring a culmination of ideas and just make up my own thing because Mm -hmm. like it goes back to that cool shits thing, right? Have you ever felt so um, alone that you invented your own God basically? It's pretty much what I did that started to do unconsciously or or consciously, you know? And so uh, like my, I remember like I would always be at dinner and you'd say grace, you know, and it was my whole family there where it was Thanksgiving or Christmas and and um, when I stopped, when I stopped participating, kind of like reciting words in my head, mm. it was when I realized that I was like, oh, I'm, I'm like not Catholic anymore, you know? Mm. Um, and wow. I think that, I think that that was like maybe 13, 14. And it wasn't like I didn't respect anyone else's faith. Like, like I was always like, you should believe in what you want to believe. But I just, th- there was just something more out there that what mm. it wasn't doing for me. And I thought that like, you know, I looked at a young age, why did religion exist? You know, I was asking that question, I think around eighth grade, like why as human beings do we feel the need to believe in things we have no tangible proof of, right? And I think when it comes down to it, it's that the brain will immediately invoke a sense of comfort in discomfort, Mm -hmm. right? It'll, It'll sort of invoke, like in the unknown, the brain will immediately let just like populate something known, right? So I, I run people through this like mental exercise a lot. And if you look up at the yeah. at the sky and you have like a an eraser, right? Just from like Photoshop and you have all these stars and it's a clear night and you erase all the stars, you have this sort of like black darkness, right? It's like yeah. kind of, it's space, right? And then I always ask people, okay, like use that same eraser and just erase all the darkness. What immediately populates in your mind? It's white, right? It, it's, it's light. And we know that that that's probably not we don't know what's what it is but our brain immediately gives us an answer because it's it's the fear of the unknown so it's like here it is you know mm. you don't know 
here it is. Um, and I think that like in my mind, religion kind of served this dual purpose in like feeding a piece of humanity, which is our fear of death, our fear of never seeing a loved one again, our fear of losing a child too early and never being able to hold their hand or touch them mm-hmm. or, or teach them, right? These very intrinsic sort of sorrows of humanity and also like the achievements of humanity that we celebrate with something greater than ourselves, right? We practice a service of community. And then you had the third aspect, which was like the sort of dogmatic um sort of uh almost like um like capitalistic sense of like ownership you know of like of like uh, we're using this religion to control people right and that was a more human aspect of it as 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 opposed to like the greater sort of uh you know being but but it really we sort of took it and ran with it you know as as human beings and and we it became Mm -hmm. sort of integrated into everything but i really i don't know i was just like man you know in my mind like I didn't have a problem with, with religion at a young age, but I was like, is it going to make me a better person? You know, what can mm-hmm. I take from it that's going to make me better versus what's controlling my mind? What's sort of closing me down to the possibilities of things outside of my belief system, you know? And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. Just, uh, yeah, I guess just like doubt in general, yeah. you know, I was a very like structured thinker. And so, yeah. you know, when I was like, you know, even when we talk about heaven or like the afterlife, right. you know, my, my grandmother was so, or she still is like so much like, you know, like I'm going to see my loved ones in heaven and I don't mm. disbelieve in that. And I totally understand where it's from. Like, like right. I, I truly hope that happens for people. Right. Um, yeah. But I also, the scientist in me is like, we just become, we just going back into the soil and the fungi right. eat us and right. we become part of the system again. And that right. energy is just transferred, not created or destroyed. And like mm. our soul sort of like, you know, um, floats on if you will and then there's all these other things right uh, yeah but yeah I, I don't know I think just being a deep kid you know I was like uh, I was watching cartoons and then thinking about why we existed at the same time you yeah know? right um and so, uh, but it's interesting that you had these thoughts because I spent a good amount of time with you. You know, I remember your mom driving us to volleyball tournaments right. in Phoenix, and, and right. I, I don't, I don't ever remember having a conversation with you because it was just so not uh, the thing to do. You know, we were yeah. athletes. You know, good-looking kids, like we were chasing, right. you know, like whatever status. You know, being right. cool, popular. Yeah. And um, man, if I would have, if I would have brought up like, hey, <laughs> like, you know, I know, um, I know, you think God well, exists, <laughs> right? This is, I mean, that is interesting, man. I just, I think, yeah, I think I am lucky. So I, so I, I totally, everything that you just said really resonates with me. Just like when I was a kid having these new questions. And like, I also think a lot of it, like I would imagine, like, I feel like that's probably pretty common. Like I said, like these, these deep questions early on, they just, they populate your mind and they sort of stick with you the rest of your life. Um, yeah. And like, we definitely should have talked about it. I, and it, uh, unfortunately we didn't, I, I got very lucky that I just, I, there happened to be this friend of mine that was like total, like he basically introduced me to thinking critically about this stuff. Um, and that was very helpful because it allowed, it provided me somewhat of a language to start working through it. But I, I sort of came to like very naive and immature conclusions. Right. I mean, but, but I'm with you. I was also not ever like an atheist because I thought the atheist position was one of the as same, kind of radical as the believer position. Yep. Um, so there's kind of this like deep agnosticism. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyways. 
Because you thought a lot about it. It's it's absolution, right? How can we be absolutely sure of something we don't know? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just, and like absolutism in general is, uh, yeah. So I, so I'm not holistically against absolutism, but I generally like it is, it requires a ton of justification. Like if you are absolutely sure about anything, Uh, you better have like a ton of evidence and it better be incontrovertible or else like, like it's way more, um, I think for me, it has been more helpful to approach life with more uncertainty and, Mm -hmm. you know, assessing probabilities and, and iterating and failing fast rather than try to like develop hardcore absolutist beliefs because right. um, there's a lot of that stuff that, that gets sticky too fast. That That's almost a symptom of our current societal pains is that we live in a society where like opinion or absolution is now people can't hear anything because they're not sort of like thinking about their own thoughts. Yeah. You know? It's just like, yeah. I think it, so it is sort of. Thing. Yeah. Well, so uh, a few things um, that I was, kind of share back on, on your like reflection. Um, Cause everything you said about sort of how you theorize and conceptualize religion uh, early on, I, I, I found it very provocative and, and interesting. There's a book called the sacred and the profane by Mircel Eliada, I think, or Mircel Eliada. Okay. He's, he's a Romanian, um, philosopher, theologian, academic, and uh, I got introduced to him at Georgetown. So Georgetown has this class called The Problem of God, like which is like, probably it's like the most famous class at Georgetown, because it's like, wow. how do we deal with this? Like everything that you're talking about, everything that I was thinking about, and, and it, like everyone has to take it, The Problem of God. I mean, it's just like amazing. And you think about these things. And, and so I was reading this book, The Sacred and the Profane, and and he and and Eliade talks about religion as a limiting language, like a language that we use when we reach the limit of what we know. Um, Ceiling, yeah. And that was exactly what kind of you articulated, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, that's profound that George is Georgetown like a Catholic university. I have a couple friends that ran track there and Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so um so Georgetown is is Catholic and it is Jesuit, uh, which was a okay. big I mean when we get into this later that like that was a big the Jesuit like Ignatian theology and the Jesuit identity and like how Jesuits conceptualize faith was something else that kind of started to bring me back to uh, the Catholic church. Um, Cause it was just like kind of radically different. Wow. Oh, I would yeah. love to talk about that. Cause I don't know anything about that, yeah. but before we get into that, let's talk yeah. about like that, the process of refining faith. Cause that that's yeah. sort of where AA comes in. Right. Right. Like yeah. when did you start going? Like, why did you start going? You know, mm. when did that become a part of your life? Yeah. Um, yeah so uh like i said i i kind of always knew i had this issue um 
and then I fell and I like broke my jaw and that was this really sort of like crazy moment where it was really kind of worrisome and I was like okay like this is gonna have to be something that I deal with in my life somehow and I just had no idea how and it was really hard for me to even envision a world without drinking I mean like I couldn't conceptualize it like my entire life and I was never a daily drinker like it was just like a weekend thing but it was like the payoff of like a really hard week was like that I would party and have fun and I just couldn't I didn't it was such a poverty of imagination I guess is like how I think about it now because like now I haven't had a drink in you know over eight years and like I can't imagine my life with alcohol now um other than it being uh extremely painful and very dark and probably ending very quickly um but I couldn't imagine it without it and so you know I was trapped uh I couldn't live with it I can I I can live without it um one of my best friends uh my senior year of college um you know, because I was the, the president of the student government and I was, you know, getting good grades and I was trying to do all this stuff and like be Mr. Everybody. And, but I was blacking out and I got hospitalized again. Um, and uh, people who were my friends that loved and cared about me were just like, look, you've got to like try to do something. Like they didn't know exactly why, because we were 22 and it was like, is this just a phase? What's going on? Yeah. Uh, and my friend, uh, Fitzlufkin, he walked me to my first AA meeting, like when I was, um, a senior in college, uh, he, he's like this big skinny six, six guy. And he like put me under his arm and like walked me two miles up this hill to this meeting. Cause he's like, you're like going to go. And he was like, I don't know if this is going to work, but like, you're going to go. Um, and they talk about like you know, and I didn't stop drinking. Um, I met some people, some really great people that I'm still in touch with from that first meeting that I still text with. Um, and they were like, well, you should come back. And, and so I was going to these meetings and I was just like, Oh my God, like I don't buy it. Like these people are all happy and they don't drink. Like, and I just didn't, I couldn't imagine it. Um, I, I try, I tried going, but I was in college and it just, I just, couldn't do it. I, I don't know. I just, I wasn't, I guess I hadn't hit my bottom yet. I mean, is, is how they would talk about it in AA. Um, and then shortly after college, um, uh, it just, I kept drinking like I did and like everybody else stopped. Like no one was blacking out anymore. Like it was totally not, and I just, I couldn't, and, and I couldn't figure it out. And it was really hard. And, um, and just like, uh, a series of, of bad, like nothing like too bad, but, um, like nothing like when I shattered my jaw. I mean, that was like the closest that I, um, I ever got to dying that I am consciously aware of. I mean, there's probably lots of other times that I, I could have tripped or fallen or gotten in a car accident. Um, and it just, and I, but I I have to make these long stories short. Um, I, 
was a teacher and I was working late one night on a Friday and I was like uh, writing uh, a bunch of stuff and I was like feeling fine about it because I like had a 12 pack of beer that I was just kind of like plow like while I was working on this stuff because I could edit it like later you know and I was like thinking I was Ernest Hemingway like write drunk edit sober is what he said so I was like okay I got this um you know and I and I was like alone at night three in the morning and I was drinking by myself writing on a weekend and I was just kind of like what the fuck am I doing like is this ever going to end? Like, this is a weird place to be in my life. I don't know if I want to be here. Um, yeah. And, and then I, uh, Oh, and then I, I drank a few more times, but a week later, my last night drinking, I just, I woke up and had gotten myself into a bad situation and had, been borderline you know deceitful unfaithful with the women in my life and i had started to get into like a little bit of trouble with the law and i just like remember that morning i was like i just it was the first time that i didn't want to damage control what had happened i just was like I'm done. Like I'll do whatever it takes to like not die from this. Cause I, yeah. I just deep in my bones, I felt it that morning and, but I had no idea what like to do. It's not like that morning I was like, yeah, I'm never going to drink again. I was like, that would be amazing if I pulled that off. But like yeah. I had very low hope that that was going to happen because I had tried to not drink before a lot and it had never worked. Um, and I thought back and I was like, the only place I know is that I went to AA a few times and all those people were happy and they didn't drink. And I was like, I've got nowhere else to go. Let's go try that, you know? And uh, they joked that like, no one goes into AA on a winning streak. Like you go there, like when you literally are where I was, I was like, well, fuck, I guess I've got to go to AA now. <laughs> like, cause I didn't know what to do. Um, yeah. And so anyways, that, that was how I ended up. And then, uh, you know, and I heard people talk about getting a sponsor and working the steps and I didn't know what that meant. And then, uh, my third day of sobriety, I, I went to this meeting at, you know 9 p.m and i was you know smoking a cigarette and having a cup of coffee in a white cup i mean just straight out of the movies of a you know how a is portrayed and uh this guy's only a few years older than me walks up he's asking how i'm doing i'm like yeah i've got three days sober i'm freaking out i'm thinking that i you know i don't know what's gonna happen and he's like you know you never have to drink again if you don't want to you just like just do some of this work and he just like said it so simply and been profoundly and he was like yeah like, like i'll work with you if you want to like you know just just give me a call tomorrow and um so i called him and we, we started started working the steps and uh and um it, it's hard to describe exactly what happens so i can describe what like literally happened and then i'll describe what I sort of think psychologically spiritually happened. Um, yeah. Like, so 
I'm of the belief that for AA to work, you, you really have to like work the steps and there are like steps in a book with like guidelines for how to do each one. You have to like have a notebook and you have to write out things that make you upset and people that have hurt your feelings and people that you've wronged and you actually have to write this out and then you have to find your part in every single one of those things and you have to talk to this about someone else and then you have to go talk to those people and tell them that this is what you're doing and like so I was like I have no idea if this is going to work I'm just going to hold my breath and my sponsor was kind of like he's like he's like just try to like if you so he said if you want to drink again after you finish the steps that is cool with me he's like but just like wait for the miracle to happen see how you feel after you finish the steps and i was like okay and that was actually a fine because that logically i was like okay that makes sense at least there's like an end point to this i can get fucked up if this doesn't work it's almost like he could see how you think how you thought and he was like you know i gotta give this kid an end goal or else he's not gonna finish it right yeah exactly and uh and then i did and then like i don't know uh i basically had a few days sober i had a week sober i had a few weeks sober i had a few months sober and all the sudden i was experiencing what i thought was impossible which was a life without alcohol. It was not horrible. It was not fun. Early sobriety is not fun because you are like a delicate flower uh, in like a brutal world and all the things that you know how to do to protect yourself. The most important thing you know how to do to protect yourself from feeling of being in the brutal world of the delicate flower is gone, ripped from. It's not an option, right? So you like yeah. it, it's like you're a baby emotionally. They say right. that you stop maturing emotionally when you start drinking alcoholically. So I started drinking alcoholically when I was 16. I got sober when I was 23. So I was like a 16 year old like kid again uh, as a 23 year old, and it was just it was horrible. But like at the same time I all of a sudden had 90 days and I was going to meetings and I was working the steps and I was like, I could, I started to have a vision of what my life could look like. Um, and it was just not always easy, but it was like compared to the terror that I caused my parents compared to the deception and harm that I caused my friends and people that I loved. Uh, this like new vision of my life was just like, it became so much more, it just, they say it becomes the easier, softer way. And that was just my experience. It was like, no, this is like for sure what I have to do. Um, because my life is so much better now. Um, yeah. So, but but there's a bunch of roadblocks because like the god question the christianity question the all of that the stuff i had to work through through the steps um and i'm happy to share about any of that but but that was kind of how i ended up uh yeah in the AA. 
so when did you because i know a huge part of a because uh my other well my very close friend matt duggar who coincidentally went to south point and then went uh-huh. to um Tucson High with me. His brother graduated from South Point. He was the first guest on the show. Um, really? He talk, yeah, he talked specifically about his, he's, mm. you know, went to A for 10, 12 years because he, I think he first started going around the same age, 22, 23. Uh-huh. Um, and, and same thing, like blackout uh, thing, started drinking when he was 14. Um, it's interesting because I, I drank a lot in high school, but it's interesting that you bring up the blackout thing because I never experienced those. And, yeah. and that's, I didn't realize that that was uh, maybe correlated with, you know, alcoholism. Maybe yeah. having a, a gene or something, you know, predisposed yeah. to it. Yeah, so I would say that. Yeah, I mean, of uh, there's kind of two big questions. I mean, and like alcoholism, like looks different for everyone, right? Like sometimes it's every day, sometimes it's not. But like, if you, so most people, like don't black out right so like i've asked my friends or my like partner my fiance but you know people have blackouts when they like are partying in college and stuff most people i know that partied a little bit in college can count on one or maybe both hands the number of times that they blacked out and georgetown is like a really heavy drinking school so like people blacked out people got fucked up but even like they can count on two hands how many times they blacked out, and I've blacked out hundred like hundreds of times, like like two orders of magnitude more, and it's just and I didn't know how abnormal that was. I just you know if it was a full blackout, if it was a brownout where like you're kind of blacking and you're blacking out, and like you know things come back, and I mean so like blackouts are a pretty big sign not that necessarily some i mean i can't diagnose it was not called but that's a big sign and then um if you so something else i couldn't ever do was like if i set out only have two only have two right i could try to only have three or four never never could do it yeah it's like i I lost count up to four like i you know it's like i just couldn't do it I think it's like, I think psychologically this relates to a lot of different substances. Like, uh, yeah. you know, not everyone can relate to alcohol addiction, but drug addiction, porn addiction, you know, a lot of these things yeah. that detach us from ourselves. We kind of hide behind these things, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think men have sort of an intimate relationship with these things. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't have statistics on this, but I feel like more so I hear more men that kind of struggle with these addictive behaviors mm-hmm. women do, but I think by and by there's just more men that are really sort of, uh, you know, in this space, if we just look at a broader context of like AA, I'd say this probably heavily male weighted, although there are females that go through AA, right? And it, I'm just kind of curious if it's like it's almost part of our society and culture too, because of like mm. what you know the masculine is supposed to do or what you know, mm. like how we're supposed to grow or like you know, be stoic or, or be strong through life. Um, any thoughts about about that as far as like how how being a man plays into the yeah. addictive nature? So that's a really interesting question and something that I haven't thought. I mean, it's not something that I, I know a lot about. I thought a little bit about it. Um, I don't have the statistics offhand, but uh, you're right that AA is, is predominantly male, although there are a lot of women in it and there are a lot of uh, like women alcoholics, female alcoholics, 
yeah. women identifying alcoholics. Uh, um, and so I don't know the proportional split. I would say that there's a few things probably driving that, like the perception that AA is very male like dominated starts to have some selection effect on like who goes right so like like women don't always feel comfortable because you know and there's good reasons for that um and then there are a lot of like women only meetings and stuff um so it's it's hard for me to get a sense immediately what the proportions would be but i think you're probably right that it's fair to assume that even controlling for like the selection bias and like the misogyny inherent in a lot of structures in our society, including um, things like AA. Uh, I, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if men struggled more. And like, I guess I would say, I would almost say it's less than the masculine and yeah, it's probably bound up in, in, in how we conceptualize masculinity. Um, but I think it's also a number of, that's interesting. I mean, so like, uh, on the one hand, I think because of how we've been socialized and how we evolved and what our lives are like now, yeah, I think there is kind of like, Hmm. I've like, cause like so much of this is, is like is gendered and I don't know how much of it is right. like, you know, natural versus not, but like the sure. patient thing, like, I think, I don't know. I'm just going to say what I think. Like, I think women uh, tend to, or in my experience, like are more patient and like have a higher pain tolerance and like they like i feel like men we are impatient we don't have a lot of pain tolerance we are not socialized to think that we can say when we hurt we are not socialized to think that we can say when we're vulnerable or when we feel weak we don't have support structures of other men to, or or other women or other people to um, help us heal through that. I mean, and, uh, I, 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 and so, and on the one hand, like some of this is a reflection of a lack of evolution and a lack of socialization. But on the other hand, I think it's real. And so there's like this immediate need to quell something that makes us not feel good. And basically, no positive or pro-social adaptive mechanisms for doing that. Uh, and so it's way easier to hit something easy in private and not have to deal with the like reality that it is underpinning. And, and I'll also say like, it's possible that women experience the exact same intensity of the pang and the same lack of patience regarding it maybe. But I also think like the pain tolerance is like something else too. Um, yeah. 
yeah so that's i do think there is something there and and, and i'm not sure what it is um and, and and i'm not familiar with the like literature on the biological markers because that's also possible right that there are just sure. like things that are are genetically in the y chromosome that for predisposed people to alcoholism but um anyways that's my speculation like what do you think I completely agree, dude. I mean, it's it's so nuanced, right? There's a lot of different things that play into this. I think genetics, like neurobiology, of course, are a role. But I do think social constructs, like yeah. um, weight, you know, they weigh it, they weigh us. And and I think that like young men, you you, you stated it really brilliantly. It's like there's not a lot of outlets, you know. Yeah. Um, I was not, you know, and my family was great, but but I wasn't encouraged to talk about my feelings, you know. Um, uh, you know, if, if it was like, uh, you know, not that I was discouraged to talk about them, I'm sure, uh, you know, I would have been met on that level, but it was never something that like I was expected to talk about, mm-hmm. you know, I was expected to be an athlete, expected to be a good student, I was expected mm-hmm. to be respectful, you know, um, to be, to be kind, but, but to be able to express my emotions or be vulnerable yeah. at how I was feeling, that was never a stated right to me you know um whereas i feel like uh, and, and i don't want to generalize here but but for a lot of my female friends that was probably a little bit different you mm-hmm. know based on how they were raised like hey how are you feeling there was kind of check-ins like that i think with, with some of them but with a lot of my 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 male friends if not all of them like i'm i don't really hear you know unless the, the parent was like very emotionally aware and maybe a therapist or something of that nature and maybe even if they were a therapist they weren't yeah. but you know like I don't, I don't recall, you know, me having a lot of these profoundly deep emotional conversations with young men until like I started to build brotherhoods within my own, Mm -hmm. you know, frameworks of, of friendships. Right. Like it was my my doing, it wasn't really like someone saying, Hey, you need to make sure you talk about these deeper things with your friends, you know? Well, dude, that's just so powerful. And I think it's so, Right. And the other thing that I've just identified, I mean, I'm not like, uh, you know, a beacon of maturity or whatever, but something I've realized is that a lot of men, when they're older, are still emotionally under underdeveloped talking about their feelings and talking about failure and talking about weakness. And yeah, like, I feel like, uh yeah it's so the crazy thing is like when you're a young boy and you have this like macho image and 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 you have no mechanisms or strategies for dealing with that in a healthy way it's not like you grow out of that you just become an adult man with no healthy mechanisms and no strategies of dealing with it and then you're a closed off father or closed off parent or uh or you do right or a close off partner um and i I mean and i and like obviously women face all sorts of barriers too and like evolving their communication and there's things that probably lead to you know maladaptive path dependencies from when they're young it's just in different ways but like that like a macho culture completely disables emotional communication in a way that makes it very hard to ever yeah i guess like feed your soul right like that's that's yeah 
yeah, I know we're focused on the masculine here, but like, you know, the, there's underdeveloped parts of the feminine that, that yeah. play crucial roles in a unhealthy relational dynamic. Yeah. And we, oh, we usually man. don't notice, you're right? We usually oh, don't notice man. these things until yeah. we fall in love, you know, you yeah. fall in love and, you know, you're, you could be the most two intellectually good looking people, you know, yeah. very sexually attracted to each other. And then you're both emotionally at the age of five years old. And yeah. then, you know, it, right. it goes back towards like the, the shutdown, the tantrum the passive aggressiveness slamming the door all these things that play out you know and they only come out and you know this too mike is that they only come out when like um when we really love someone you know because you don't really show those parts of your shadow to people that you just meet on the street you know you build these governors psychologically like i would never act like that in front of a stranger but when we feel comfortable to act like that in front of someone we love because well well they're going to still be here they'll they'll forgive us or or you know you know right way of communicating we're angry right right Um, yeah dude i mean it is amazing how much so it was interesting that you i think earlier in the conversation talked about self-honesty because and so like frederick nietzsche you know this famous philosopher guy uh probably unfair to just call him that but you know uh he had this quote i've been thinking about recently that i just just, i found really startling he said you can measure a man's spirit by the amount of truth he can tolerate and i just that like really kind of blew me away because i think so much of our spirits so much of how we act in life is a function of yeah how honest we're being with ourselves and if we can communicate that to others sometimes uh people say certain things that are just like a um a spoonful of meditation meaning that when i hear words like that Mm. i feel more present mm. you know it's really interesting because uh that is so true man. Yeah. you can measure a man's spirit and and i would even change the the word man to human because right, i think this applies right. to females too oh, he was speaking obviously in the terms he was, of ma- he was man. speaking like, in the yeah. 19th century when yeah yeah but right. but he right. absolutely yeah. means humans yeah he absolutely means yeah Yeah. it's not a gendered or a sexual thing it's really just the human being he's speaking to you and it's your ability to sit with like not only the comfortable truths like our our, the the champion within us but also the shadow like the the things we've done wrong right oh you being able to talk about your struggles is was one of the reasons i think you're so intellectually and philosophically uh curious because Mm. you are i think you've developed a resiliency to admit that you are wrong and that you made mistakes, you mm-hmm. know, and, and that I think you being able to do that and not defining your persona, you know, it's like, it's like what your, um, what your, uh, uh, sponsor, sponsor told you to do, like writing, like, you know, your sort of mistake and then immediately after contradicting that mistake, but I'm still lovable. Yeah. It's being able to do that is sort of that exact thing that, that Nietzsche is, is uh, getting to, right. Yeah. And you have to be able to do that in all the aspects of your life. And the only way to do that is to genuinely be inquisitive about the times that you've really caused pain or been in pain and not make excuses or run or hide or medicate or avoid you know yeah i mean and i think like learning to be true to ourselves about the shadow parts like that is like kind of like 
the most humbling, but like the most important too. Cause I mean, it's also, I don't know. It's also just kind of like naive to think that, I mean, and I forgot who said that like the line between good and evil, like, like uh, goes right through the center of every person. Right. Yeah. And it's just like, and that's tough because I think people are inherently bad or good or like whatever. I, I actually don't have a particularly sophisticated opinion about original sin versus inherent goodness. Like the Rousseauian worldview that in our state of nature we're, we're good and, and like cherubs or like versus the um, Hobbesian view that like, you know, we're selfish and life is brutal and nasty and short. And I, but just the circumstances of life present you with situations, opportunities. And if you believe in free will, which I do, Mm -hmm. you, if you're honest with yourself, you realize that you have the capacity to, to like manipulate and like yeah. be deceitful and be harmful yeah. and like anyone who doesn't think that's true is just yeah i mean i don't know i yeah so the the self-truth thing especially about the like the hard to swallow truth for me i mean and i was blessed in some ways i mean because i had a very apparent choice to make right like yeah. it was like if i wanted to live or die Right. I I like I had to accept this truth about me. So I actually I love talking about it and and like I appreciate all of your kind words as well. I mean and, and like I'm glad that I can be on this podcast sharing about. It. But at the end of the day, it was like I I was gonna live or die, and like right. I I had to make a choice of whether I I could accept my reality or keep wishing and hoping it was something different. And, you know, and, and, and that was it, you know, that's really interesting. You bring that up because for, for the majority of people, I don't have that sort of, um, heavy of, a, of an addiction. Right. It's life stark. and death. Yeah. yeah. Stark of it. How do they, how do they, you know, um, sort of parcel out that this is worth yeah. enough of their time and energy to like, yeah. you know, get to that point because w- what you brought up about, you know, someone that doesn't believe that they can be manipulated or, or X, Y, and Z thing. I completely agree. And if you don't, if you can't picture a world like that, you're not ready to heal yeah. because you're right. not ready to be honest, right? right? We come back to self-honesty. And right. so until you can be honest that you too can be the persecutor and the causer of pain as right. well as the victim in any scenario. And until you're ready to actually look at it and look from another's perspective and see, because oftentimes we can be in pain while causing pain at the exact same moment. Right. And oh, we, yeah. we don't yeah. realize it because we're almost so stuck. always, right. Almost always, almost always. You, you yeah. Like people, people who hurt are hurt people, yeah. you know, and and I truly, I mean, and that, in in terms of the good and evil thing, I mean, I I don't think anyone as an infant, I mean, there's some proportion of people maybe, if if we're being scientific about it, 
there's some proportion of the distribution that like may have some like sociopathic tendency and actually sure. not have a conscience, right? I don't know sure. what percentage of people are like that. But, you know, excluding those people, which, you know, and those people can inflict damage and pain. Um, but, but everyone, I mean, the activation of, of our harming other people is, is always rooted in some unmet need that we have that like, we just haven't investigated, explored and, and healed from, I think, I mean, that's, I completely agree. I think you bring up like the percentage of people that might lack empathy or might be able to not experience empathy. And I've, I've, I've been sitting with that question for so long now because, you know, we bring up terms like narcissism and codependency and sociopathy and, 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 um, you know, being psychotic for instance. And I think that like that we have scientific ways to quantify human beings, obviously, but, but there's still so much we don't know. Right. right? I, I, I truly believe even someone that is experiencing that would be, you know, um, categorized as a sociopath like you know perhaps there's a biochemical imbalance that experienced so much trauma right. they're, they're stuck into this thing but but i think there's still stuff we're not seeing because I, we're, we're still completely. you know what i mean it's it's like the one percent of the ocean thing it's like right you know, we right the science is is wonderful it's how you and i got degrees it, it led yeah. sort of factual thought but but it certainly has gaps on what we're going to understand about ourselves specifically when we talk about emotion when we yeah. talk about love right like the only way we can quantify love is to ask a human being how do you feel when this happens to you right and we measure the brain and scan it and we see what lights up but if you look at those variables those are, those are really tiny in comparison, like everything we feel. Yeah. Yeah, dude. I mean, I think like one of the other, I mean, and again, this is, it's not like a fault thing. It's not like anyone. It's just like we think linearly, but it's just not how we experience life and it's not how life yeah. works. Right. Yeah, I Cause I, I think you're spot on. Cause I don't even think about this. Cause I say that thing about sociopathy and psychopathy. Cause there's some, Right. But like, even if you look at the like worst serial killers that we have in our history and you, and you look at their childhoods. Yes. I mean, like these people are experiencing these horrific things. And so like, who's to say that they like tabula rasa were just like evil people that were ready to kill and not that like, maybe they had some like genetic predisposition but the feedback loops that they experienced are what like lock in dangerous patterns and that's what i think i mean and then and that's the same thing with like addiction it's that like there's some genetic component but it's the behavioral lock-in that is simulated by trauma or stimulated by maladaptive coping mechanisms simulated by a lack of a capacity to communicate emotionally that activates that gene and like locks in the like behavioral maladaption that then you have to deal with. Let's talk about, uh, that's brilliant, Mike. Let's talk about like the reintroduction of faith because that's such a big component in uh, AA and you know, you went through this this period, and you can say how long it was that you were more um, agnostic. You know, yeah. which, which I can relate to as well too. And like, what was it like to refine your faith? How did that work? Mm-hmm. Like, was it a, was it a switch where you're like, okay, I have faith again, or was it like a slow build because you you know uh, kept like reconnecting with this community? How did yeah, you go from that's a great question. Um, yeah, so I was for sure agnostic. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll 
kind of break apart uh, this answer. So a big misconception that like uh, that was very important for me to understand in AA and to clear up proactively for people is that like AA is not Christian. It does not require you to believe in God. It does not require you to believe in Jesus. There's a chapter called We Agnostics that is dedicated to people who are agnostic. There are AA meeting halls in Iran, and there are AA meeting halls in, in Tunisia and in Vatican City and in Israel. I mean, and in India, I mean, just people from all different traditions, all different faiths, Islam, uh, Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity, obviously, atheists, uh, humanists, uh, Christian scientists, everything in between is represented. The guys that founded AA were Christian and that informed their worldview and the language that they use. But it's not a requirement. So that was a big, and like people die because of that misconception. Mm-hmm. So like you know, like the New York Times and other places will run opinion editorials about how AA is not for me because it's misogynist and it's Christian and it's X Y Z, and it's like. Uh, not only is that untrue, it's like it's wrong and people die because of it, because it prevents people from coming in and getting the help that they need. Now, AA is not the only way to get sober. There's lots of different ways that work for a lot of people, but, um, but it's, it's, there's no require. There's the only requirement is the desire to stop like drinking. And that's in the text. But anyway, I was confused about that. It bothered me. Uh, you have to uh, develop a conception of a higher power, uh, which as a agnostic nihilist relativist was very difficult for me. Um, And so I'll I'll share about how I kind of got over that and and then how that kind of like formed a bridge. Like they say in AA, there's all these like, beautiful sayings. One of them is, uh, God led me to AA and AA led me back to God. Um, and that was what I experienced, uh, cause I went in as an agnostic and I mean, and, and I still sort of in like a technical sense, probably an agnostic. Um, yeah. but in a sort of pragmatic practical sense, I'm very much, a very much a believer. Um, so the second step is, uh, so the first step is you admit that your powers are rock hall, that your life has become unmanageable. Had no problem with that. I was fucked. I couldn't, I couldn't drink. I like, uh, but the second step is, uh, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Uh, and then the third step is made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the hands of that higher power as we understand it. Um, so two and three were hard because they sort of presuppose some some belief in a higher power. And so let me just walk you through quickly how I got through that because I told you this last time and I think you liked it. So I was like, okay. Am I willing to believe that there is a higher power in the universe? 
So the starting point of that, if you're a good nihilist, if you actually know what you're talking about in having a lack of belief, you know that the implication of that is that you are the God of your own universe. So there is no, because if there is not a higher power than your conscious mind, your own experience is the God of your own universe. You are the highest power in your universe. So that was an uncomfortable thing for me to reflect on. I was like, well, I've never really thought of myself as the God of my own universe, but I guess I have to grapple with that because now this is asking me to believe in a higher power and a power greater than myself. Um, there was also the concurring evidence that was abundant by this time that alcohol was more powerful than I was because I was admitting that I was not more powerful than alcohol because I knew that I tried, I tried every way to drink like a normal person and I just couldn't, I can't hack it, man. You know, I just couldn't do it. Can't do it. Alcohol is more powerful than me. So I was like, okay, that's a sad reality. So, but like one, I, that opened up the possibility of a higher power. I've now identified at least one other higher power in my life. It's alcohol. And I was like, okay, the ocean is also more powerful than me. Like if I like attacked the ocean, like if I went out, I was going like to beat it. I'm going to lose that every time. Right. Um, so I was like, Okay, so I'm open to the possibility of a higher power existing. Uh, if if a higher power exists, then necessarily the definition of that could be sort of anything. So that is inclusive of the Christian God or the Muslim God or the doorknob of my home, right? Like it's inclusive of anything, but it includes yeah. sort of traditional faith structures. So I was like, okay. I'm open to believing that there is a higher power in the universe. Um, and it would be sad if alcohol was the only thing more powerful than me. Uh, and so that was how I was able to kind of do that. And then once you get to the, the possibility and you're also just pragmatically not trying to die, uh, that, that was sufficient for me. Like once I got there, I was like, okay, I don't know how this works. There's some higher power. I don't know what it is. It could be the ocean. Some people say it's like the group of AA, a group of drunks. It can be like generically defined love. It can be forgiveness. It can be these things. It can be family, right? It can be anything. So that was what like made me start. And so then I would say that I hooked back into my up bringing in specifically the Jesuits at uh, Georgetown because the Jesuits, um, they, they believe in a faith that does justice. And so it's a very active faith and that you're out okay. in the world trying to make the world a better place. Um, and I got to spend all this time in this intellectual tradition of Georgetown where I was learning like public policy and economics and how to manage sort of nation states or like whatever. Um, but then it's infused by like Jesuits spirituality, which is like being a man and a woman for others, uh, like pure personalis, um, like the magus, the more like 
these deep spiritual commitments to like use your mind and your knowledge to make the world a better place for you and those around you. And I just always love that. And there are two uh, priests from Georgetown, Kevin O'Brien and Matt Carnes that uh, are good friends of mine now and have become incredibly important people in my life. And I was an undergrad. I was, you know, somewhat arrogant and confident in my own beliefs. And, but, uh, but I was open to exploring and like learning and, and they showed me a lot of love and patience and kindness. And they walked me through questions and doubts. And like one of them was my research advisor and he taught me how to be a social scientist and, Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, defined the next 10 years of my life and defines my life now. And, Right. The other is, is, you know, the person who was ultimately my sponsor back into the church. Um, and, and, and they were just these amazing men and they were, they were brilliant and so dedicated to God, right? Like their whole life, like they, they joined the society of Jesus right. and examples tend to speak louder than instruction, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, wow. Um, and so then once I was in AA and I was open to the idea of God, um, and like, so on the one hand, I find the archetype of Christianity and sort of the counterintuitiveness of Christianity just be so profound. And it was like, uh, in order to not die as an alcoholic, I had to give up complete power. So like, surrender to win like give up to not die it's like this counterintuitive notion like you have to stop something in order to start something um and it's in like forgiving others that we are like forgiven and we can forgive ourselves it's in 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 loving others that we are loved um and this, of course, crescendos in and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. So like the cross and Jesus' sacrifice and the counterintuitiveness of God on the cross dying for humanity when he didn't have to uh, and what that enables for us consciously, like in our own mind, intellectually, is radical and and then so for the first time i i experienced that in my own life like the counter intuitiveness um and that was just like it is that kind of like merged all these different threads and even though i have a lot of issues with the catholic church i really like pope francis i like the jesuits um I like the story of the cross and it gives me a tremendous amount of meaning and understanding of like, of like my own battle with, uh, yeah. addiction. And, and so anyways, that, that, um, but then I also think just shortly, the other part of it is this was the framework I knew. And right. so there's like some obvious anchoring bias in that, that, that ultimately led me to this. And, um, yeah. Yeah, I th- I feel like one of the most powerful things is just like the idea 
that the Jesuit faith brings in is like the act of service, like working mm. towards the greater good. You know, I think yeah. a lot of religions have that as an underlying thing in most, yeah. in most scenarios. Um, at least the, the, the larger, you know, more popular religions in the world. And, and I think that's really healthy. I think that's, I think that's one of the things that as a culture, we're really losing touch with, not that you necessarily need yeah. a religion to believe that we need to be in service of others and build community. But I think religion over time has acted as a way to congregate, right? Congregations to get together, to celebrate each other. And like the sort of celestial being aside, humans certainly need each other to heal, right? Like you you talk about all these people that touched your life that, you know, your parents flew out, they were part of your support system. Like these two men, the, the, the six, six gentlemen that walked you to your first AA Mm -hmm. meeting. Like, like if anything, you know, um, I'm not a believer of angels, but you know, these are, these people are angels that are real life, you know, because the, the way they're touching your life you know and 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 i shouldn't say i'm not a believer i'm an agnostic you know uh, person in that sense because i don't know but there's definitely been people in my life that have walked in when i've been in in such a state where where i felt like uh, i'm unworthy or or worthless you know and they've reinvigorated a fire within me to believe Mm -hmm. in myself and and you know even if it's just me uh me alive for another day you know wanting to sort of be be alive a simple thing like that right um not to mention people that have invigorated a flame where it's like wanting to wanting something more or yeah. wanting to be better you know and i think like i remember you bringing this up because when i was in the car listening to you talk about this and it's like in that pre-call i was like the it's such a profound um statement to say like to surrender to being comp- like uh not powerless but but to sort of be subservient to something else yeah. and, and, it, and it brought in in my mind like um the idea of like fate and uh, mm-hmm. uh sort of the the universe sort of um you know conspiring for us but then you also brought up uh, in the beginning you believe in like free will and and i and i and i would love to talk to you about this mike because like yeah. i find myself still mm-hmm. at the sort of precipice of trying to decide whether mm-hmm. you know are we in complete control mm-hmm. of you know, everything because of our choices, you know, um, because we always have a choice whether to, you know, to be a good human being, to be, uh, you know, not, not so good human being, or is the universe also, you know, um, implicitly or explicitly influencing us? Because in my mind, if we just think about love, it's like, you know, I just exited a relationship in May of 2020 that I thought mm-hmm. was going to be my last relationship, you yeah. know? And, um, so many of my friends that are therapists that are very spiritual, they're like the universe, you know, Nico is conspiring for you. You know, you just mm-hmm. have to believe in it. And in my mind, I'm like, well, it's hard to believe in it when, you know, it's not going your way. And then when mm-hmm. it's going your way, it's quite easy to believe in it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's being such a deep, deep thinker yourself, like, where do you fall in in that space of like you know free will and sort of being a sentient being having choice as well as like a greater power or something you know certainly having influence on our trajectory yeah um wow yeah i mean i think in some ways uh thinking really deeply about these questions is like part of the answer because it's just like it kind of can inform your life with like a a deep vibration that is really in enriching and grounding Mm -hmm. um because i don't know that we'll ever get to you know solid answers on a lot of this 
stuff. But here's my kind of best take on this because okay. I, I, I've had to think through it. Um, so I think that for God to exist, then free will has to exist because the only way that there could be death and destruction and harm if there is an omnipotent and omniscient God is if he gave us free will. Um, because that's the, yeah, I mean, cause, or otherwise like, like God is, you know, has pre-programmed all this harm and stuff. And I just, I don't, that isn't in accordance with how I understand God. And there's some people who understand God like that, or who just say, who are we to judge God or like whatever. I just think it's, but, but like the free will thing makes sense to a certain extent because it's like, well, then we choose to be active in, in our own fates. And mm. sometimes we choose badly or we invent like t technologies that overwhelm us, like the car, right? Or like, you know, other things like that, like distractions that just, just have knock-on effects and feedback loops that um, create suboptimal conditions for human flourishing um and like maybe there's a world in which the reason that we have consciousness which i i don't know exactly where the science is on this but i don't know there are other animals that are like conscious or like self-conscious and have the capacity yeah. to be meta-conscious um and I think free will has something to do with that, um, and 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 the consciousness that that has then imposed upon us. Um, but you know, at the same time, so like Moby, the DJ has a song. We are all made of stars, right? And that's like, mm -hmm. in a technical, I think, physical sense the notion of the big bang is like there was like it's it, like there was a, a moment and then matter all the matter that has ever been ever before and ever will be was here in this moment and it's like shooting outward and everything that we're ever made of is like made of this and that the way those particles are moving is predictable and so mm -hmm. that kind of undermines the notion of free will and and kind of puts us in more of a determinist framework yep. so um i think that's why some of the best things i've heard on it. so there's a philosopher named richard rorty who is uh i don't know he's not he's like he's not the father of american pragmatism but he's like the most recent, I, I guess, father of American pragmatism. Um, and pragmatism is a framework that helps us kind of move beyond some of the questions around like the reality of the fundamental axioms. Like, is there the big bang and thus like, or not, like not is there the big bang because there obviously was a big bang but like the big bang the implication of that is it like is it a is it a deterministic universe or do we have free will like that, that's kind of a platonism they would say yeah. it's kind of a dualism and the pragmatists would kind of say well like let's try to think through like what allows you to have meaningfully derived 
um, experiences in life and like, like maybe let's sidestep some of these fundamental axioms. I guess I'll just conclude by saying that I don't find any of that a resolution. Um, and I think yeah. pragmatism can kind of lend itself to like relativism in a way that it hasn't completely absolved itself of yet. But for me, yeah. the, my consciousness of my choices and my capacity to make choice, uh, helps me make sense of both free will and God and like my experiences. And so that, so that's what resonates with me. How about you though? I mean, like, what do you think of all that? Too? I love it, dude. I, I think, um, th these two, th I, I will say this is really like sort of reminds you of the tension of the opposites and it's yeah. like structure and chaos, mm -hmm. you know? Um, mm -hmm. and, and sort of chaos is like, we, we have no, control right uh, at, at all and structures like we have some sort of like free will yeah. in, in, in suspension and and i think that they both can exist and and even like i think there is structure in all chaos we just might not be able to see it because we mm -hmm. have we, we're, we're limited by our perception you know like yeah. dimensionally and and physically and emotionally but i think that like they were getting way down the rabbit hole right now which yeah. i love though um, <laughs> because I, I think this applies to like to like love and to expectations yeah into into uh relationships too because we, we have such an expectation that like life should be this way and mm -hmm. it must be, be this way but i think we always have a choice i think we, we can we impose our will every right. millisecond of our life every nanosecond right i can get out and go outside my house and go cause harm to someone right now yeah i don't because of empathy because of consciousness you know um and i think that in that lies the ability to make a choice mm in the chaos that I am providing structure to with my fundamental perception of reality, you know? So like when we zoom out, it's just such a weird thing to think about how small we are. You know, I, I often yeah. like, I mean, I'm still experiencing grief and loss from, from my loss of my partnership that I often find myself very sad still about. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and often to get out of these, these slumps is, is I just think about like, um, not that not to not feel my feelings of course but like to think about how small i am on this mm. like big piece of molten rock floating around a giant ball of fire and energy you know and it's mm. like i think like when we think about that it, it just it just makes a lot of the shit we're arguing down here about a little trivial you know mm. um because like we're focusing on all these things uh that are sort of, you know, not as important as helping each other or, or, or sort of improving the quality of life for, or enhancing the, the quality of life for life on the planet, you know, not just human life, but, but all life and mm. being caretakers, mm. you know? Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think again, you you pointed out like we'll never have the answer to this i don't think we're made to mm -hmm. i think i think we should be talking about it because yeah. it, it's just philosophical thought you know yeah but i've also noticed in my life that i think like this so much that sometimes i have a really uh, hard time with just being yeah know? just just existing yeah. just enjoying i think my last partner would would echo this sentiment she would be like can you just like relax yeah you know because i because i would be like talking about this shit all the time yeah um, and i think as I age, I also realize that uh, to like ponder about why the fruit is here is amazing, but I also need to enjoy the fruit at the yeah. same time, you know, and you can't enjoy it while fully thinking about it because then you're not present, right? Amen, and, dude, yeah. And part of wisdom is to be able to walk that line of like being inquisitive, but also being present, 
you know, mm-hmm. um, which I find hard. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not in a relationship now, so it's harder in a relationship, but, uh, you know, it's always like very growth mentality is how I've been. Like we always need to be getting better, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that that's put a lot of pressure on every avenue of my life. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I love that about myself, but also it's like the contentment is, mm-hmm. is something that I may never experience if I don't, you know, find something that's good enough. You know, Alain de Botton talks about that. He talks about that in relationships. He's like, with swipe culture these days, he's like, everyone, you know, there's so many divorces and there's so much infidelity and all this because everyone, like, there's always something better out there. You know, he's like, in in two seconds, you can be talking to someone that's better looking or a better match for you. And he's like, it's not necessarily true. It's just that we have sort of lost our our way of being able to say, this person is good enough and I'm willing to stay here and build it with them. You know, I am good enough. I'm willing to build it with them myself and I came back around to this tangent, but relating it to relationships. Yeah, dude. So I was going to just what you said, I thought was really interesting. Um, and it just reminded me of like two things. Um, when like, so, uh, so I, I started my career teaching uh, mm-hmm. as, as like a classroom teacher. And um, then I worked at a university making educational technologies. And then I did my PhD uh, studying educational technologies and, and how people learn um, like with technology. And, and one thing that I've come to think about like learning is that like basically learning is failing. Like fit, like we like act, like actually how you learn is when you are taught to do something and then you try to do it and you can't do it and then you have to like figure out how to do it yourself and then once you figure out how to do it yourself you have learned that thing but the only things that you try to do or that are challenging are things that you can't do and so it's almost like the only way to learn is to fail mm-hmm. and i think that's like taking a step back is kind of like like it it it's that's not always practical advice for like experiencing hardship um but i do think like how i've experienced it i mean and i've gone through some pretty gnarly breakups and i i went through a really gnarly breakup in 2017 um and it and it was i like hurt a lot and it was like hurting that like like woke up crying in the morning like yeah. had to call my mom as like a 27 year old yeah. man right and it was like yeah. fuck um but i was like i know that like this new version of myself like will be better because i have like learned from this and i've experienced this and i've grown from this and like i i I have some agency over, over, over whether I am maladaptive to it or not. Right. And, and like, I did some maladaptive shit. Like I had stopped smoking cigarettes. I started smoking cigarettes again, like when that happened. Right. And I'm not like proud of that. Um, but I, and I eventually stopped again, but like, I didn't drink, I didn't do a drug. I, I, I didn't do a lot of things that could have been much more self-harming. And instead I like reflected and meditated and prayed. And I thought about what 
my part in it was. So that's the other thing that AA teaches you is like you like that even if something really, really terrible happens to you, like someone like does something else, unless you are under a circumstance of like being completely coerced, which happens and like, Mm -hmm. uh, but most of the time it takes two to tango and finding your part in it helps you learn like, wow, I, okay. Like I, I, I didn't deserve what happened, I guess, but like Mm -hmm. I can be responsible for like my part and what contributed to it. And I I can learn from that and and I can grow from that. And it's just strange because that's like also how we learn math. Like that's how you learn Mm -hmm. everything is like, it's like you fail and, 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 and then you learn how to build that part. And um, anyways, that's just something I was thinking about. I love it, dude. Do you think, do you think that some form of, of spirituality or, or belief in greater service like to mm. humanity or to something else is essential to our evolution, like mm. as a species or, 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 you know, like, or to connecting with others? Or do you think it, it, we can certainly be completely like, you know, um, no, we're not interconnected. We're all individuals and our own gods and, you know, mm. be all right with that in the end. Yeah. I mean, so no, I think we're, for sure social animals that need connection and 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 i think service is an under i think being in of service to others like broadly conceived is an underrated commitment because it not only helps other people it helps you right size your self and your problems and your ego and it takes you out of yourself and the solipsism of your self loathing or self doubt or sadness or like whatever it is right it just takes you out of yourself and it and that i mean and like a so the 12th step is um uh like promise to share this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs it's like the service step it's you carry the message um because the only way that you can keep it is if you give it away it's like another Mm. one of these counterintuitive things right so like being of service like to others like i might think i'm a mess and like i am a mess in a lot of ways right and like Mm. i still have disordered attachments to all sorts of things and you, you know i'm still a work in progress um but if I talk to someone that has six months of sobriety or six days of sobriety or six hours of sobriety or, you know, whatever, the questions that they have, I actually can help them out. Right. And it takes me out of myself. And they look at me and because I was in this at six days of sobriety. Mm-hmm. I would I, I would meet people with six months and I would be like, oh, my God, you are on like a different dimension of existence how have you been sober for six months right Right? and then like you know next you know i have six years and it's just like so i i don't have all my shit figured out but like i can talk to someone who has six days of sobriety and like genuinely say i know exactly what you're feeling like here are some constructive things that i got told and they really worked for me 
Mm. And it's like, it just takes me out of myself so much. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think the answer is yes. And people who don't think that or like, so like to something else, it's just like, there's stated and then there's like revealed preference. Um, mm-hmm. And like, like economics uses this as like an experimental technique and people who might say that they don't believe in God or people who say that they're not social or like whatever. It's like, but if you look at how they act, mm-hmm. like they're worshiping something mm-hmm. like whether it's like, you, you know, they're, they're, they're worshiping something. They just might not call it that. And they might not think that they need a group, but then they they attach their beliefs to like the way that a certain group of people believe, right? I mean, so it's just like all of these things we do, like whether we like want to think we're doing it or not. Um, so yeah, I think so. And I think even when you just look at like the f- why people in their lives, it, it's it's majority of that is from a deep sense of being alone. Yeah. You know, a deep sense of, of being, um, you know, yeah. just like, like no one's there. There's no sense of community, there's no support, you know, like a, right. um, I had a deep intimate, you know, experience with uh, suicide after my crash and had a brain injury when I, when mm. I was completely physically alone uh, and mm. two friends from uh, San Francisco flew out. And if these people didn't fly out, like, I don't think I'd be here really, you know, I was that close. And oh I think in God, that moment, yeah. I, I had felt so profoundly uh, alone. You know, I didn't, I didn't have, uh, you know, a person I was trying to call wasn't answering. I, di- I didn't have any uh, sort of support, you know? Um, and it's interesting because like, uh, you know, with my relation with my family, like people are like, well, why don't you call your family? It's like, well, it just, it just was, uh, you know, at that time I wasn't like really reliant on them for that. You know, yeah. I was like, it just wasn't an option for me in that mind, right. in that mindset. And I think obviously the brain injury played a big role in it, but I think when I look at my loneliness through the trajectory of my life, like loneliness is a symptom of disconnection. You know, it's it's a symptom of not having people in your life that see you, that you see, that you can. And I, when I say the word see, I mean like like have a connection with to a point where you feel um, alive from being around them because they see your soul. You know, and I, and I think that majority of human beings, like when you talk about belief, like they believe in something because. Because when no one wants to die alone and when you when you fall in love with someone like you genuinely believe that this person like you know hopefully sees all of you you know providing you're showing everything right and will not judge you will stand by your side and x y and z that's why like in marriage we say till death do us part because there's this like you know you're sort of signing up for uh you know an act of service for the rest of your life right um and i think there's some there's some beauty in in that even though it's an institution and we you know a whole different conversation but i think there's some beauty in in the sacrifice it takes um to give to purposes greater than ourselves but as you eloquently stated like we really get back when we're doing that like like we can be you know you can be super rich and accumulate all this wealth and and monetary stability but if you die alone with that you're you're gonna die as if you were the sort of porous individual emotionally or you know ever because you did not use that to help your fellow people, which, which certainly is going to give you way more, you know, (laughs) emotional wealth than just sort of conquering for yourself. Yeah, man. I mean, thanks for just being vulnerable too. And just sharing that. Um, it's, that must've been so incredibly difficult and, and I'm 
so thankful that your friends were there, dude. And I'm glad that you're around still. And, you know, it's, uh, and it's powerful that you're even able to share that because it's something that people don't talk about a lot. And I think, you know, I've lost, uh, a number of people to suicide, um, and then drug overdose too, yeah. which is like a form of suicide. I mean, it is suicide, but it's like more accidental. Um, right. But yeah, I think I I think the reason why loneliness is like so corrosive is because of how social like we are and like. <laughs> you know, it's like we started talking about like these deep questions and why I'm grateful to my Catholic faith growing up because it like introduced me to these deeper questions that like don't go anywhere. And I don't know if you ever like resolve them, but in your search for meaning for me, um, other people is where like my life has been meaningful, just like interesting people, like my heart and soul and brain I like are just a composite of like people in my life, like a little bit of my mom, a little bit of my dad. I mean, a lot of bit of my mom, a lot of bit of my dad, but my brother, sister, grandparents, friends, coaches, like my heart, soul, and brain are just a composite of that. And, and I live with that very vividly. And I'm so grateful for that because I don't ever, I've experienced a lot of things and I've experienced loneliness in, in dealing with some of, uh, you know, coming to the hard truths about myself. Cause that is like really lonely, right? Like, uh, staring at yourself in the mirror and realizing what you are, uh, and what you can be. Yeah. And the only times that I've ever, um, yeah, like I, I think been in a super, super dark place is when I've felt overwhelmed with confronting those sorts of things. But yeah, I'd, having people and having people in AA and, and other fellowships to reach out to and friends are completely my salvation 100 percent. i completely agree and i feel like even building those communities around us is like a a sense of faith because we're putting our faith in other people to be there for us to guide us you know we're looking for wisdom and also building it and hopefully giving it back to um i would ask mike like before i let you go what uh you know, you, you're such a well-read person. Like, are there some books in your mind that stand out uh, specifically maybe around spirituality or faith that like were, were essential in your sort mm. of rebonding or refinding of, you know, spirit in your, in your mind? Yeah. Um, so that's, there's a book, um, There's a book by a guy named Richard Rohr. I don't know if you've ever encountered this guy. You should definitely check him out. He's like this Franciscan priest who lives in New Mexico. Not like off the grid, but like a little bit off the grid. And he like runs this spiritual center. And 
he wrote a book called uh, Breathing Underwater. Um, and it's a reflection on the 12 steps and Christianity. And so that was like particularly unique to me and very helpful. Um, but I would say that that was, I found that provocative and profound. Awesome. Excuse me. Um, you know, I think, um, There's just like so many. I'm trying to even look at my my. I mean, my one's good, but if there if there are yeah. some, you know, sometimes they're just like the book, the two books I sent you. For instance, one is one that yeah. I recommend to a lot of people. The other one is the one I'm currently reading, and uh, and I've got both of them up here. And thank you so much. I I, I was sharing with Lizette that I I I have to think of a book to share with you because I. Take- Take your time, man. I, I'm still thinking about it. Um, so, but so, some other books. So, uh, interestingly, I should say that I actually read nonfiction a lot. Mm-hmm. And that is, but like on social science and like politics and stuff. And yeah. um, there is a book called Deep Work that was really profound for me because it talks about the psychology of distraction. And I think what you talked about, how like people are unfaithful and they're deceitful and they're always like fear of, of missing out and fear of, of uh, a better option. Um, And, uh, and so much of that is, I think predicated on two things. Like the first is that we don't spend time talking about these kinds of questions. And so like, I'm so glad that you have this podcast because I think it's important that people reflect on these kinds of questions, but like in the absence of reflecting on these kinds of questions, I found myself and I've observed others attaching themselves to like less meaningful things but there's an ever ending variety of less meaningful versions of let of, or uh, there's an ever ending variety of versions of less meaningful things. Yes. Right. And mm-hmm. so if you're distracting yourself from how you feel with less meaningful things, it's like a never ending unhelpful cycle because there's so there's always some, some better version, but that's actually not what like satisfies us, I think. And, mm-hmm. and so deep work is all about work actually, but it's interesting because it gives insight into like how our gadgets and the structure of our lives are all oriented toward like not connecting deeply with yes work in general. But, yeah. um, and that was something that I read recently that was like super helpful. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, it's the it's the parallel of productivity versus yeah. meaning. You know, like right. like productivity and meaning. Like we're yeah. focused on productivity, but where is the meaning? You know, yeah. it's like we're, we're doing it just to do it, yeah, um, to be done with it. But yeah, you know, um, oh, really and, interesting. And then let me. So, oh, so um, there's okay. We've got my we've got my books here. Um, the Ignatian Adventure is another one. Okay. 
the Ignatian adventure, and then let me, um, there's one more that I would, Anthony DeMello uh -huh. is an Indian Jesuit, um, that ha he has a book called Awareness, um, and he's just, yeah, so those are, yeah, because I wanted to give you one more besides the the breathing underwater because the AA Christianity route is a unique intersection. But um, sure, yeah, deep work, the Ignatian <laughs> adventure, awareness. These are all. I, I still wish in our culture, even at a young age, we were we were teaching things like AA in like grade school and middle school. You know, mm. um, not not like necessarily like the because kids are starting addictive behaviors that early, but just yeah. there's a sense of meaning and purpose and community and connection, you yeah. know, and service For of sure. others. And I think it also allows you to sort of process your emotions a lot better too, you know, cause there's this emotional disconnect, disconnectivity that happens when we're, when we're addicted to something that's, you know, like sort of taking time away from ourselves or from love or from, you know, joy. You yeah. Know? Um, so Absolutely. Dude, what a wonderful conversation, Mike. I Dude, <laughs> thanks so much for having me on, man. I, and thanks for letting me just like kind of riff on some of these ideas. I know some of my answers you were bet. long, but I mean, it's also oh, some man. heady stuff that that, uh, yeah. that you're talking about. So weren't softball questions at all, but I, I'd uh, love to have you back on, man. We have just so much to talk about and we didn't let's sort of get into like the end of your story, but maybe we can do another episode at some point. Um, I'd, I'd love know. to do. I really enjoyed this and, yeah. it was, and it was great learning some things that I didn't know about you, man. And, I'm, and um, it's been great uh, uh, being reconnected and, uh, and yeah. like, I'd love to do this again. Absolutely. Likewise, brother. Thank you so much.